Hey girlies, welcome to Crisis Twink, the podcast where we ring the alarm about cultural emergencies. Whether it's a flop album, an insane headline, a problematic fave, or just something that needs to be urgently discussed or you'll die, we're going to revive it and make sure it gets the medical assistance it so desperately needs. My name is Drew Haskins, and I'm the only twink who can save a culture in crisis. Joining me today is television writer and dear friend, Alex Eldridge. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Hi, Hi, Drew. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I almost said thank you for having me, but I think this is technically my show, loosely technically my show. Um, it's a it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a longtime listener, and, and by that I mean I have listened to you talk about pop culture for a long time, both on and off the podcast. So this is this is a joy. <laughs> That's a very cute and sweet way of saying that I hold people hostage, <laughs> like with my conversations. Okay, so let me tell you this: I took a career strengths test today for my grad school. Mm. and is that something you're graded on no it's not something I'm graded on but they're trying to like build us into like you know building blocks of the future like teachers leaders mentors role models etc so the five that I got they're like types are maximizer which is like I guess focusing on strengths to stimulate personal and group excellence I don't know what that means communication sure podcast maybe sure input which means i like accumulating information and ideas strategy which is just basically being creative which is nice and then the fifth which is woo just woo w like uh is that a um does that stand for something no, I, at first I thought it was like, oh, he's a woo girl. He likes to woo, like, you know, in a place of woo, kind of, which is not wrong. My mind went to uh, Jennifer Coolidge in The White Lotus, um, <laughs> which I think is a good thing. I, I I'm going to assume that that's what that means. So it's not, it's it's the the verb woo, which is not the usage I typically go for these days. It's like, you're like wooing someone like, which I guess it's like you like fostering connections and like indoctrinating them into your school of thought, which is like, okay, so my vocation is cult leader is what you're saying. I took it as an exclamation, but um, I I could see how it could be sort of an enticement, you know, on your part. I'm choosing to read it as the exclamation, but like the enticement is sort of appealing at the same time too. Like, I feel like the crisis twink fandom is nothing if not a party cult. Well, and what is a podcast if not an attempt to woo uh, a certain kind of audience? Uh, I I think, you know, there's, there's multiple, there's multiple layers here. And I think any of them could be applicable and, and good you know, in your case. I hope so, because it's not, I don't think it's like, it bodes well for my critical thinking that I did look at just woo and immediately think like, oh, he's a woo girl, as as opposed to like the (laughs) actual like active verb. Um, But that out of the five, that was the one that really like struck me the most. And like, I'm trying to foster some woo. You run through the other 
other ones real quick, just one more time. Okay, let me pull it up again. Maximizer, communication, input, strategic, woo. Strategic I mean, that sounds woo. like a like a well-rounded uh, uh, young professional right there, if I've ever heard it. I hope I, I hope that like everyone in government, everyone in media, everyone in tech like has a little woo inside. I feel like, I mean, we saw, we're recording this the day after the Met Gala. I mean, AOC brought the woo in a way <laughs> with her. She certainly did. Um, I can't say I'm terribly excited for um, the the discourse that that is going to generate, uh, be it woo or, or otherwise. But it, um, I think it's been mostly anti-woo, but like, and I'm going to refrain from, from she inputting hasn't lost here. Me yet. She hasn't lost me yet. I'll, I, I'll say that. This isn't enough to lose me, but this is a, this could be read as an unforced error. And I'm not, I can, I'm not saying anymore because this is not a, this is not Red Scare. This is not a political podcast. Like where I no. cannot, cannot do it here. But uh, people were talking. She put a lot of thought into it beforehand and I hope it starts a lot of good conversations. Yeah. I mean, you can't just like, I think it was like custom couture. So it does, it, it did take work. There was a lot of thought and effort put into that. And that's all I'm going to say here. So let's move on to our first segment. Love um, it. We're going to play Go Call the Governor. Okay. So, oh, it's so topical because the California recalls today too. Um, I'm going oh. to present you with three cultural scenarios from recent and or ancient history. And you're going to decide whether or not the governor needs to be called. There um, are no, okay. I'd like, to, I'd like to make the first claim um, of any guest on this podcast, maybe, that I know exactly what that means. I love that. I love that. You're not <laughs> the first um, listener, friend of the pod who has come on like, with prior podcast knowledge, but I will say that this is a failing on my part that the rules of this game are so confusing that even people who do listen to this have no idea how to play. I, I think it makes perfect sense. Would you like to restate the, the rules in as much as you restate them? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to okay, make great. this a challenge for people. So okay, there great. are no wrong answers to this game, which I guess is part of the struggle, but your choice is binary. Does the governor need to be called? or not. All right. So let's play. All right, first scenario. Casey Musgrave's new album, Starcrossed. Does the governor need to be called? No, certainly not. Okay, what um, do you think about it? I think it's, I was really worried uh, about her follow-up to Golden Hour because I, I think for me, that album is sort of a no-skips classic. I yeah. could listen to it over and over on repeat. Um, and will um, for the rest of my life. Uh, and yeah, I, I, you know, when something like that happens, when an artist really strikes out like that, you get nervous that, that maybe that's, that's the peak. And I'm still a couple listens in to, to Starcrossed and I actually watched um, the film. Uh, oh, how was it? I, that's the one thing I haven't done yet. It was good. It was a nice uh, accompaniment. It was uh, it was very Los Angeles based, um, which I thought was cool. You know, I, I love to um, pull the Leonardo DiCaprio once upon a time in Hollywood uh, meme every time I recognize a, 
prominent <laughs> Los Angeles location. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm really enjoying it so far. I think it's, uh, you know, she obviously had a, a lot of um, uh, rich source material to, to mine for this, but um, right. I think she did it in an, in an even-handed uh, universal way um, that is, um, you know, a nice, a nice stepping stone from, from a different sort of territory that she covered in, in Golden Hour. So I, I would not call, call the governor. I 100% I agree. I think that it's a little worse than Golden Hour to me, if only because it, I think it's like a song or two too long. Mm -hmm. But like, I like how the sound is very, it's not like the typical like pop crossover, like um, Taylor Swift going from like Red to 1989 and making like actual bubblegum pop music. Like this is more kind of psychedelic and um. Like she worked with Fl the Flaming Lips last year, and a lot of the songs kind of sound like poppier Flaming Lips songs to me, which I am totally fine with. Oh, I didn't know she did that. I just yeah. saw my first concert since the pandemic last week, which was Kesha. Okay. Um, <laughs> who is a collaborator of the Flaming Lips and, and similarly has cultivated a little bit of their aesthetic as well. But um, uh, Casey, you know, her music previously is, is something that I, not to trivialize it to any degree but something that I sort of gravitated towards in, in a feel-good way yeah and this album isn't isn't that it uh, definitely but isn't. she was able to channel it you know historically I, I'm a big fan of a lot of uh you know broodier angrier music in general and I just didn't go to to Casey for that and I don't think this is this is a brooding or or angry album but I do think it is a very um uh wonderful progression for her yeah, I, like, I was kind of worried that this album was going to be super dark and angry, which I think, I mean, she's well within her rights to make that sort of album, given the emotional and personal circumstances. But it, that would have been such tonal whiplash from Golden Hour, which is, I'm still able to listen to, even though it, I like it's so happy and that narrative that's on that album is not necessarily the case anymore with her life but like I I don't know I I was glad that this album was a little bit more like complicated and resigned but still a little hopeful like more just nuance like I should have given her credit to be nuanced because she is such a nuanced songwriter but um yeah I'm, I'm glad we have it I'm, I'm excited to sit with it a little bit more this fall I also think it's so commonly the case that um when a relationship dissolves, there can be a lot of blame on one, you know, of it being one or the other person's issue. And, and there seems to be a thread that runs, runs through this, that it was sort of an us issue, you know, mm. that was discovered along the way in, in which is sort of a, um, I don't know, philosophically beautiful or um, egalitarian, perhaps not that, not that her um, ex needs, needs a whole lot of, um, you know, credit or anything, but there right. seemed to be sort of, um, I enjoy that element to it. And there's already like at least five songs, you know, that are, I like just as much as, as anything on, on golden hour, certainly. And I'm still, you know, going through the, the motions of re-listens and everything um, uh, almost as we speak, but um, I just, I'm uh, really in, enamored with her and oh. as an artist. She said, she's one of the greats right now. Definitely one of the greats. Absolutely. And she's my age. So there's, there's a, uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, just, it, it's impressive. <laughs> yeah. 
a luminary for a, an entire generation of people. That's right. All right. Speaking of luminaries, next se- or segment, what is this called? Oh, a topic. Next topic. Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie is called Licorice Pizza. Does the governor need to be called? No, uh, this is a perfect topic for me because just last night we went to go see a John Waters film on 35 millimeter here in Los Angeles. And the trailer for Licorice Pizza is only available on 35 millimeter at select theaters in Los Angeles right now, this being one of them, the Los Pulos 3. So have you um, seen the trailer? I saw the trailer oh last night. Oh my God, night. wait, I had no idea that... Okay, I just saw the title and I was like, that's a silly title. So you, okay, so you've seen, can you reveal anything or like what? I think I can. I mean, this is a memory of, of the trailer, but it okay. was one of the things, I mean, they're doing a John Waters series at this particular theater right now. So we bought tickets to that, not knowing that this was going to be, because um, they don't normally show short trailers at this theater actually, but um, he cut a trailer for it and put it on 35 millimeter and, and gave it to American Cinematheque. Um, and it's, uh, it's, first of all, uh, is it Alana Heim? Um, I, I think so. It's the one who's not the lead singer of Heim or the one who makes the faces. Okay. And I'm glad that she's getting her own thing now because otherwise I'm, she's always the other Heim to me and now she's licorice pizza Heim. Well, she, I thought that she was perhaps a supporting character, you know, because I don't think any of them have had, uh, you know, they're in their own music videos and everything, but um, they haven't had quite a starring role, but this appears to be a starring role for her. I thought um, Cooper Hoffman, who's Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, was the star, of, and he appears to be the, you know, um, uh, male star of, of the film, but yeah. it's a very... Um, uh, I don't even, again, this is memory of, of the trailer, but it's, it's scored to um, Life on Mars, the original Life on Mars, oh, not wow. sort of a, a, a slow, um, you know, trailer rendering, like, like you see a lot. Yeah, thank God. Um, they actually use the original track and it just, it feels like, I have to look this up too, but I don't think um, Paul Thomas Anderson is working with the cinematographer right now. I think he just has a camera operator and a gaffer and a key grip and he sort of, kind of does it himself and it looks beautiful it was shot on 35 millimeter you know he he's doing this this trailer reel rollout at only select theaters and everything like that and it just feels like a very um uh it, feel, it feels like kind of the the nexus of um you know boogie nights and, and punch drunk love in a way okay. but um in the era of of boogie nights that's um, music and- to my ears like boogie nights is still i think my favorite PTA. He's one of those that I could just, yeah, you know, no misses, pocket though. length about one, uh, one uh, film, and then, it, oh, but actually, this other one is my favorite. Oh, and actually, yeah. the other one is my favorite kind of thing. But I think I go Magnolia. Honestly, I really love Magnolia. Is um, great. I mean, they're all great. There's not even like I don't. I know people are a little cooler on Inherent Vice, but I love Inherent Vice. I think it's phenomenal um i i saw inherent vice for the second time at the at the new beverly here in los angeles and um i went into it having not really enjoyed it the first time but gamely seeing it a second time and i just thought oh fuck he did it again you know he got me and it it took sort of a second (laughs) viewing and i think it's because he leaned into the um 
Pynchonisms um, so well, which yeah. if you've read Pynchon, there's sort of a frustrating quality to the narrative. Yeah, because... I have not. A lot of that really experimental literature, like the Pynchon-esque stuff, like Foster Wallace, like I have not dabbled into, but I know that it's hard to translate to a visual medium just because of how dense it is. And like Inherent well, he, Vice, he, he is a really down... dense movie. Absolutely. And, and, you know, Pynchon kind of leads you down all these, all these avenues where he puts a great, seems to put a great deal of importance on one storyline. And then you sort of hit a wall and the character loses interest in the wall and goes a completely different direction. And you're just still with it. And it, it's very compelling in, in um, prose form and translated to, you know, the visual medium, the way that he did, um, mm -hmm. I think is maybe even more frustrating because at a certain point in that movie, you feel like it just sort of keeps going. Um, yeah. But if you, I just sort of released myself to it the last time. And, and so Licorice Pizza, I, I would say is my number one most anticipated film this year, probably. Oh, I, so it is coming out within the next few months. I think by Christmas. I forget oh, okay. if it had a release date on Yeah, I haven't the seen the, the release date. That's why I was like, Okay, I'm glad it's coming out soon because I'm I've been really looking forward to that too. Like I like it when Bradley Cooper gets weird too. And I feel like he's such a good fit for just the PTA universe in general. Like did you ever see that Kevin Smith monologue about when he uh was commissioned to write the Superman Superman movie? Mm -mm. Um look it up, anyone. It's actually a very funny um extended sort of monologue that he does, but one of the um brightest characters in the anecdote he's telling is um this guy named john peters who is um barbara oh, streisand's hairdresser yeah. and has been a long time um famous producer and, and i guess um bradley cooper plays john peters um in, in the film in okay Pizza. that's exciting john peters for those those who may be more up to date with like recent tabloid news was married to pam anderson for like two days last year before she, she got it annulled yeah like he's and he's um the character that you know the movie shampoo from the 70s i love shampoo yeah okay i do not like shampoo but warren Beatty plays a character based on john peters in shampoo Oh, that is true. Yeah. 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 I did. John, he's like one of those people who's just been like kicking around for a long time now. Like, like he's not like male Angeline because I think he does like actually do things. No knock on Angeline, who will be our next governor of California. But the, yeah, he's like one of those just kind of like lizards on the rock who like has just been here since time immemorial. Yeah. In the Kevin Smith monologue john peters is sort of like the final boss producer he has to meet with in order to get signed off to actually commission to write the superman movie um and he's explaining how he was barbara streisand's former hairdresser and the quote he uses is because that's just how it works in hollywood is you just sort of fail upwards <laughs> oh my god i i cannot i feel like that's so reflexive too to like Ask Bradley Cooper, who was most recently famous for remaking a Barbara Streisand movie from that from the John Peters era, basically, as the guy who helped like usher her into like the 70s, basically. 
I might have to call Layers. the governor on you for not liking shampoo, but that's a different podcast. Uh, well, well, yeah, well, <laughs> the night, the sequel to this, we'll talk, we can talk about shampoo because I do have a lot of thoughts about it. But all right, last topic here, the new reality show, The Activist, where activists compete for grant money and a chance to go to the G2 World Summit airing on CBS in 2022. Does the governor need to be called? Absolutely. This yeah. is a this is a um, red telephone um, yeah. call to the governor. Is, Smash like that. The, the new football is out. The buttons are being furiously pushed. I've kind of only been peripherally aware of the existence of this. Um, and I sort of it's one of those things where I see it coming closer in the timeline, as it were. And I just keep scrolling, you know, yeah. as fast as I can because I am i don't want anything to do with with that but it seems like someone should call a governor or um uh a, a cancellation expert a hollywood cancellation expert <laughs> like you can sort of see what they were trying to do here like updating the apprentice for a more for a perceivedly like more gentle more altruistic age that i don't think we're actually in but there's something so deeply cynical about like come making activism a competition like this so like it already feels like that enough on social media rather than actually like competing for grant money and like facetime and stuff you know I, there was some mild controversy about their first uh contestant selection oh i, I didn't see that she's like a ceo or something but okay, well. you know you can be a ceo of a, a smaller activist you know focused organization and but um it's gonna be a hard pass yeah for me maybe something good will come of it but i'm preemptively calling the governor. i i think there is potential for slightly fun mess given that the judging panel is usher julian huff and Priyanka Chopra hyphen Jonas. That could be interesting. I would like to see Julianne Who's Huff. Who's the second person? Julianne Huff. Who is that? Who is, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Julianne Huff got her start as a one of the dancers on Dancing with the Stars. Ah, uh, okay. She's like a Utah Mormon. She was in Rock of Ages, that like Tom Cruise musical from 10 years ago. And now she's mostly just- The audience famous. can't see my face right now, but yeah. there's a lot going on. <laughs> she also shouldn't be hosting a show about like activism, considering she literally did blackface within the past 10 years, like dressing up as Uzo Aduba's character from Orange is the New Black. In like 2014 too, like Halloween 2014, like that, that, that is way too recent. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, and yet it seems so distant. It seems so. <laughs> people have forgotten quickly, I guess, because she has this plum gig now and her, um, she has a line of vegan, organic, natural wine that is the current official wine of the Los Angeles Chargers. So I guess that's her activism, is that she makes vegan wine. There are many layers here. Yeah. It is, hmm. I just have so many questions. I don't think they're, they're necessarily worth addressing. She's a, she's a, a, a Mormon 
dancer, actress with cultural sensitivity issues and a vegan wine, a line of vegan wines. Yes, that's that seems correct. <laughs> that seems correct. Um, I, I think that's about the perfect summation of her whole thing because her, it, it really is like a whole thing. Like it's nothing concrete. It's nothing direct. But now it's being channeled into an activist TV show that is airing on CBS in 2022. I will say I am having a lot of fun um, imagining the executive level conversations that went into the creation of this show. Um, I think that would be a fun room to be a fly on the wall for. Well, for, um, a lot of unintentional comedy um, at, at the corporate level. We do know people, close friends even, who were flies on the wall at these conversations so which we cannot talk about on this podcast but just know that there we could make a docu-series about the making of this show if we just wanted to interview certain people so i'm rushing to my uh i messages it's twitter fingers turn to twitter twitter <laughs> fingers but all right we got to take a quick break and we will be right back and we are back let's move on to this episode's cultural emergency Alex, what are you rushing to the ER today? Well, this is something that has been percolating for quite a long time, but became crystallized as my answer last night. As, as I mentioned in the first half of the podcast, I went to go see uh, a John Waters film um, in a theater on 35 millimeter film last night. It was um, Crybaby, which I had never heard of before, mm -hmm. but ended up probably being my favorite of his films that I've seen so that's far. That's the Johnny Depp one, right? That's the Johnny Depp one. It's like mm -hmm. um, it's like if John, it's like John Waters saw Grease and was like, I could do better. And yeah. um, maybe arguably did. But um, in any case, it was a really lively audience who was fully on board with it. And it's a pretty gonzo bonkers, you know, John Waters type of thing. Um, but uh, I got home and I saw this article um, the headline of which um, is Paramount Pictures reportedly prioritizing streaming titles over theatrical releases. Yeah. And this, I think, I would argue, is a uh, genuine cultural emergency right now. And there's a lot of blame to go around, I think, not necessarily geared towards one side or another. And I don't necessarily have a binary... Um, approach to this, but the diminishing priority of theatrical distribution on the part of many studios, which are owned by entities that are not necessarily, um, well, art focused, certainly, but um, also cinema focused, also, right. um, you know, it seems like maybe some of them want to sell cell phones um, more than make things that are really good and indelible and, and memorable and, right. and things like that. So, um, you know, this is something that I, that I've thought about for a long time because obviously um, Netflix has produced a lot of really amazing films, you know, some of them, uh, the Irishman and um, May was the, I'm blanking on the um, Alfonso Cuaron. Oh, Roma. Um, yeah. Roma, um, both of which I saw in an actual theater. Um, and I also saw Army of the Dead uh, earlier this year. That was one of my first um, mm -hmm. movies back in the theater. But I do think, you know, particularly 
because there are so many distractions nowadays, like even when I'm at home watching, whether it's Netflix or the Criterion channel or something like that, it, it's a much less involved, more distracted experience for me. And I think we're at a point where we need to, it, it's more of a conversation about preservation than it is about going back to the way things were. Right. And it doesn't seem like a lot of these entities are even interested in having a conversation about preservation, you know? Um, so that's what I'm bringing to the table this week. And it's something that frustrates me a great deal, even before the pandemic, when um, things were moving in this direction. And I mean, I just, I love disappearing into that dark room, you know, where the really, you know, like I remember one example I was thinking about like good theater experiences that I had. And one of them was um, uh, I saw at the Vista here in mm -hmm. Los Angeles, which is this big, it's a really great single screen theater, really big, huge single screen theater um, was Gone Girl, um, yeah. which I saw with a packed house. And the way people were shrieking and sort of audibly together, you know, taken aback by certain turns in that was just one that that you know i had a memory sparked of that and um i just think it's a real there's a lot of things to talk about here but i just think it's a real tragedy and, and um emergency in the truest sense of the word that that this is not um that this is going away in yeah. in the way that it is well i mean paramount i guess at this point is the fourth major entertainment conglomerate to start migrating a lot of their theatrical releases over to streaming and this kind of like dual modality or just the single like streaming only modality that like i guess disney plus in slash disney um universal slash peacock and warner slash hbo max have been doing for a while now so i mean it's definitely a trend and i I get the ethos of why they're doing it. Like so much to, for these streaming services to stand out, they have to like accumulate catalog and like use their catalog to separate themselves from the com their competitors. Like we have these certain things, we have more things here, like come over here. And like, I guess it's only natural that they would start grabbing these like theatrical releases and like using them to just goose up the streaming services like it does make sense from an economic level but I agree with you that it completely disregards the I mean the, the theater going experience which is I think so essential for movies like I mean you and I both watch a fuck ton of movies over pandemic especially <laughs> And it's so hard to watch a movie at home in one fell swoop with like not so great audio. I, at least I cannot speak to your audio system. It's probably better than mine, but like my shitty four pixel TV in LA was not the best way to watch like half of the movies I watched. And, you know, having my phone right next to me, like without some old woman ready to like tut tut me for like even moving my hand towards it is not the way that most films should be you know experienced or consumed one of my invest i'm i'm annoyingly specific and you can see some of my setup here in this room actually but, yeah <laughs> um, i'm annoyingly specific about um 
watching movies in particular at home. It's like I have to, it has to be like dark and like maybe even the door shut. And one of my investments actually over um, over the quarantine um, was a really good set of over the ear um, noise canceling Sony headphones, which mm-hmm. I don't just use for for movies. I was also sort of a I'm never leaving this apartment and I have certain things to concentrate on sort of investment. Right. Um, but that has been one great solution. Um, and having that whole year robbed of those, I mean, I, I see a couple movies a month, of, at least in the theater, you know, yeah. in, in the before times and everything. And it was really, um, I rushed out again after my first dose, um, of the vaccine. Yeah. Um, cause it was like, I would just went to like an IMAX theater and saw mortal Kombat, Um, uh, and there were like two other people in the theater and I just like was so eager to, to get back to it right away. That being said, you know, I was in Cincinnati working for two months this summer. Um, and this isn't just true in Cincinnati, but I'll just use Cincinnati as an example. Um, I think there's a big problem that's been developing for a long time with um, exhibitors uh, as well. And the sort of Walmartification of the theater going experience, right. where in a lot of places, you know, here in LA, when you were, you know, you know, we had the arc light, which was sort of like the picture and sound quality is like the best you'll ever see it. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, there's the seating is, is wonderful. And, and it's a really, uh, it's a prioritization. It, it's of, a state of the art facility for movie going or was, yeah, and it doesn't, it doesn't even need to be um, exactly state of the art or anything, because I think there's also an issue with access you know, particularly for families and things like that. When I mean, the arc light was was a pretty penny. I, I loved it to death. Yeah, and I was happy to definitely not cheap experience though. Throw down that twenty dollars. Yeah, every time fifty five dollars um, for popcorn at the arc light. Was that true? Is that 55, true? No, it's not true. But it's like fifty. It was like fifty five dollars. <laughs> like I, you could spend eighty. You could spend almost a hundred dollars at the arc light. I think pretty easily for a family. I, when the arc light closed, I felt like, why live in Los Angeles anymore? You know, and, and there, there hasn't really been the, uh, anything that's opened up since. Uh, well, anyway, just to finish the, the anecdote, I um, was in Cincinnati and I started on my days off. I would walk across the river to Kentucky to, to the big AMC multiplex, which is sort of the nearest, um, you know, theater to downtown Cincinnati. And I just I just felt you know, as much as I was like, I'm back, you know, I'm, I'm back at the movies and I'm here to see what, you know, I saw like F9 and, and Zola and, and In the Heights and everything like that. Um, but I just felt, you know, in certain instances, not with Zola, but in certain instances, you know, you see the Pepsi commercials that start playing at, at the beginning of the movie at AMC. And then even throughout the entire rest of the movies, and the previews are in front of them, you feel like the Pepsi commercials never really ended. Yeah. Um, and it's not like a wonderful experience necessarily, you know? And here I was with all this like wind in my sails to get back to the theater. And, you know, In the Heights was was um, day and date on HBO Max at that, at that time. And I, chose to actually go to the theater yeah. to to see it um and and yet the overall experience was you know it was sort of like um was not wonderful so th- there's blame to go around on all sides i think 
but um, it's particularly perplexing to me that it seemed like, and, and there's obvious safety issues uh, with the pandemic and with people not feeling safe enough to go back and everything like that right now too. Right. But ultimately, you know, I think that we need, it'll probably go a much more niche direction and sort of like, we'll have a lot of little Alamo draft houses kind of thing and, and maybe less the big multiplexes. But um, I don't know, it's perplexing to me that, um, it's, it doesn't seem lucrative, which Shang-Chi um, was yeah. not really simultaneously and fucking killed it, you know. Yeah, and that was Labor just Day a feed release. And that, I think it made $85 million. Something, Something like insane. That? I think it yeah. broke every Labor Day record. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but then, you know, match that with the Suicide Squad, which was granted R-rated, so there's perhaps you know, some more limited, limited built-in audience um, to begin with, but um, just did not cut it. And I haven't seen Shang-Chi yet, but um, uh, The Suicide Squad was not a bad movie, you know, to the tune of, of deterring that amount of people. I think what deterred the, the revenue that it would have gotten otherwise was the fact that they dropped it on, on yeah. their streaming service, quite cynically, in my opinion. Um, the very same at the very same well, point i can sort of see the decision making process behind dropping such a hard r movie on streaming and in theater simultaneously because like for a movie like that especially kids are going to want a lot of kids are going to want to see it and you can actually watch it on streaming services because it's not age locked or whatever or like restricted like actually going to a theater is like um i really really wish that a lot of these services were more transparent about the finances and the box or like you know the like streaming equivalent box offices for all these movies because i'd really like to see how like what that actually looks like. Like, I think the Scarlett Johansson suing Disney over Black Widow scenario from earlier this summer. Sure. I think was a decent indication that revenue was not as high as it would have been otherwise because I don't think she would have sued them had the box office been a little bit more robust than it was given the dual release strategy that they did for that movie. Did that, do you remember, because I saw that in the theater also actually, but do you remember if um, they charged for that on Disney Plus or was it just streaming? I genuinely don't remember, but the stream, like the rental prices for Disney Plus that they charge are astronomical. Absurd. Like they charge, I remember when Mulan came out, they charged $30 for Mulan. I was like, I'm not paying $30 to watch a movie from my own couch. That's crazy. And then the quality is so anonymous that like for a lot of, not all of these movies, but like a lot of these like Disney Marvel properties have, are kind of cookie cutter at this point. So. Yeah. And you know, we're not necessarily totally talking about quality movies here right like last december when here in los angeles the pandemic was quite scary and you know we didn't leave our apartment for two or three months or something like that um and um hbo max had 
you know, dropped Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah. Um, at that point, it was like, thank you. You know, it like, this is the moment for that. But it, it does just start to feel like, and I'm particularly concerned about, um, about Dune. Yeah. Um, which I would love to see as two halves of the thing that they allegedly wanted to make. And, and whether or not that outcome is guaranteed seems to be riding on uh, a profit model that feels dubious to me. Yeah, a profit uh, right model now. that actively works against movies like this. These these hyper big budget, super conceptual epics like this that like they are so much more risk taking than you know. Like I, I, there are certain movies like Disney Marvel properties like certain universal properties like f like fast and furious movies like that are basically built in to succeed like they're just fail failure proof at this point like dune is the kind of like big budget movie making that i think we do need more of and this this day and date model doesn't know favors whatsoever you know and yeah, and like Denis Villeneuve, I'm butchering his last name, but like he's talked a lot about how. Enough. Sure, fingers crossed. I hope he doesn't sue for that. But he he's talked about how he thinks that this basically is like completely fucked over his vision because he's so pessimistic about. Well, this. I wanted to also touch upon the annoying discourse around those comments that he made, um, where there was I saw a great deal of snide commentary uh sort of mocking Denny Villeneuve yeah does that sound right uh his <laughs> you know insistence that um you know it needed to be seen on it was needed to be seen on on the biggest screen possible and then a lot of people were instantly like, I'm, I'll show him, I'll watch it on my iPhone and, and have a great time or whatever. And like, do what you want. But like, I just remember like, speaking of him, Blade Runner 2049, I saw yeah. in IMAX and that was transcendent. Fabulous. Yep. I saw that at the Arc you know? Oh, like that was enveloping in a way that, I never would have had that experience otherwise. I'm sure I would have thought it was just fine at worst, you know, if I had watched it at home or something yeah. like that. But, you know, and, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of this prioritization on the streaming services is leading to a lack of emphasis of scale. Um, I haven't seen Jungle Cruise yeah. um, yet, but I heard anecdotally people complaining that it was a lot of you know tight frames and and kind of animation almost as opposed to um not that we're looking to jungle cruise specifically to save cinema yeah we're looking we're looking for a good time with with the rock and everybody else but um i do think in a lot of the trailers that i've seen for certain streaming exclusive films um we're sort of moving into like 90 minute television show territory and i say that with love for the medium yeah. of, of television you know but i just think 
you know, even Crybaby last night, you know, which isn't an epic by any stretch, but there is this sense of scale and, and, you know, kind of formalism. I'm making this sound like not a fun movie, but it's a very fun movie, but I'm applying these terms in the sense that in, in maybe a, they don't make them like they used to yeah. <laughs> way anymore. But, um, you know, getting back to what I was saying about the Pepsi commercials sort of never stopping. Yeah. Um, it does seem, seem like we're kind of moving in this unfortunate direction that I hope is, is more similar to the 1960s and that will come out of it at some point. Um, then just sort of the end of a road of, of an entire, um, you know, yeah. momentum leading to now. I do think a lot of this is so pandemic contingent. Like, I mean, I don't think, I think it's fair to say that most of us thought that we would be in better circumstances by now. Um, yeah. Considering this is now yeah. stretch on for like 18 months and like, you know, you just can't go like the full capacity model obviously is not like viable right now. And studios have seen, have like done the math or whatever their math and think that it's not lucrative to do this. I would have to imagine that at some point the pendulum is going to sh shift back because I don't know many people who are like satisfied with not being able to go to a movie theater like it costs money it's like you know like a, there's like a little bit more time and effort that goes into it sure than yeah. just watching especially it if you want your... to see a lot of things yeah exactly yeah. but like for new releases or whatever i think it's still going to be the defining model like people just have a built-in hunger for that kind of experience especially after it's been withheld for so long and like i think stuff like shang chi is hopefully a good bellwether for the appetite people have to actually go back and see stuff especially see stuff that they want to really see like it's still viable enough of a model for studios if they just churn out product that they think people are going to be excited for what do you think about this idea i saw a thread from from a, a writer uh, a week or two ago that was um sharing their experiences with their own, I think, high school age kids right now, and the way and the types of content that they consume vis-a-vis -vis TikTok and Snapchat and things yeah. like that, like a true death of what we're talking about could be a generational lack of appetite for a certain kind of format. Um, do you have any, as somebody who is <sighs> maybe closer to that generation than, than I am, do you have any, um, vicarious I'm insight i'm decidedly tick tock averse like i do i'm not really on it and i only really see what filters through to me on other social media platforms i will say that if TikTok, if like there was an entire generation of people who only could consume media content in those quick little bites like that then tick, then Quibi would still be around today. Like there is definitely an appetite and like a built-in like training almost to like enjoy long form content, whether that's just like TV, TV miniseries or film. But like, 
I don't think TikTok is really like severely impact. I, I, I don't, I guess I am talking out of my ass a little bit, but like, I couldn't imagine that TikTok is going to be the thing that's going to take down. No, and I've certainly lost. <laughs> yeah, well, I've certainly lost a, a good amount of time, you know, maybe upwards of an hour on certain days, um, not in the app of TikTok, but you know, they get yeah. reposted other places and things like that. And it, it is very funny and, and entertaining. And, um, but we've but been I doing that for that... a long time though. Like there's not, I don't think there's a big difference between going down a TikTok rabbit hole versus going down like a YouTube rabbit hole, or even like going back a little further, like adult swim from a long time sure. ago. It's like that same kind of surrealist mindset that like you just kind of it's like addictively surrealist like you keep wanting to like scratch this very specific itch that I will say I would like if more mainstream movies tapped into that sort of like gonzo wackiness I think that could be like a good avenue for people to start getting product out there that maybe this new generation would want to see but I don't know what that really looks like right now. I don't want like Dumb and Dumber Part Four or whatever we're on. But well, yeah, I think a lot of mainstream comment content right now, and I'm I'm selectively using that word to describe it. Um, is you know you see a lot of coverage movies out there. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's less of an emphasis on blocking and shot composition and things like that, as opposed to just getting a wide of medium a close you know and moving on kind of thing i think um and whether or not people are are actively conscious of um these specific filmmaking techniques behind it i do think it has a, a subconscious effect on people's um you know absorbing you know the things that they're being offered you know whether it's on streaming services or, or frankly even in in the theater right now and and um so to your point about the more inventive qualities of, of TikTok, you know, I think that those could be uh, uh, not replicated necessarily in a cinematic way, but um, in, in spirit, I think you're dealing with something there. And also, I, I like, I totally agree with what you said about um, the failure of, of Quibi. You know, if that had been a, a super successful takeoff, I, I may feel a little more doomed about yeah. this topic right now than I do. Yeah, I, I think there is hope here. Um, I mean, I'm more concerned about like the kind of like movies that big studios are making in terms of like quality and, and aesthetics more than the film going experience. Like, because um, I mean, there are there are some pretty high quality movies that have gotten like either day and date releases or direct to just the like the scheduled theatrical release to direct um, streaming release. Like I, I'm thinking, I mean, to talk about like surrealist fun, gonzo wackiness, like Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar from earlier this yeah. year, I think was mm-hmm. like something that would have really worked well in the theater just because it's so fun to go see comedies in theaters where everyone's laughing and reacting. But that's the kind of thing that also toggled really well to a home release too. And that was it's still well, one of my favorite moment, movies of the year. 
Well, I think that was like a twenty dollar rental or something too, and that wasn't on a on a streaming service, but they just oh, dropped it? it on. Oh, iTunes I, I, and I guess I watched it on. Um, oh, you know, I yeah, I watched it on Friend of the Pod, John Boone's screener service, I guess. So, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I did not he never pay. shares those screeners with me. I hope he's listening to this right now. I hope he chose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, it, it's it's this weird gray area balance right now that, that we're in where it's just not everything is quite totally safe yet. And we have a lot of people who are wanting to make very safe decisions. And by a yeah. lot of people, I mean, at, at the sort of corporate, you know, um, executive level right now. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very weird landscape out there. And, and um, I also think too, that I've mentioned some of these screenings that I've gone to, um, you know, here in here in Los Angeles, we're so spoiled by the amount of uh, repertory um, screenings that we have, and you know, these like wonderful theaters that we can go to all the time. Yeah. And, and I I just hope that that that's something that can um, be uh, in, enriched in in other markets in other you know yeah. places going forward because they're not you're not getting a whole lot of movie magic you know a lot of places right now i think if you go out and spend 15 dollars on a ticket yeah you're just seeing cruella like a rinky dink little regal i haven't seen cruella yet but did you see that um there was i think a a thread somebody did on twitter the other day where they were i mean to your point about inventiveness and things like that where i guess and i have not seen the movie and i I'm loath to openly shit talk things, but oh, oh, um, are you talking about like the lighting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, in, in terms of like yeah. basic coverage, and not that we're going to to Cruella to you know save cinema, regardless of how it's lit or anything like that. But apparently, the the final act of that is like completely takes place in darkness and is sort of yeah, you know, doesn't doesn't inspire a whole lot of. Um, uh, wide-eyed passion maybe even from a more passive you know um viewer there's a big difference between like kinesis and aesthetics and i do think a lot of these big budget movie or like action movies specifically like really mistake a lot of things going on for visual interest and that is and I, certainly cruel as pro like i like that movie just fine actually but like it's definitely not um like the the main visual delights of the movie are like the costume design, the like production design, or the like the physical production design. Did that you see you it? See. You saw the Corella? Yeah, I saw I saw it in theaters crazily. Um oh. it was my first movie back in the theaters actually since pandemic started. That's not a bad one. I mean, no, was I, I didn't mind it at all. You know? I, I thought it was pretty enjoyable, actually. Not great, but like, it it could have I been way a, worse. Well, I do love like a big dumb movie. Yeah. You know, in in the theater, like I'm I'm not out here, you know, saying everybody should be watching, you know, Bergman films. All that. Well, I am out here saying. Yeah, I, I would like. I, I'm, I'm here there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm very much there. Yes, but um. You know, I, I'm not saying it needs to be like solely high prestige art all the time. I mean, I, you know, one that I always reference that I ended up 
loving, I'm using air quotes here, is like Independence Day 2. You know, I saw it in like IMAX and, you know, had like a five gram edible beforehand. And, and you know, I just, I had a, the time of my life in, in a That's way. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, in, in IMAX, in, you know, the magic of the movies. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's not about um, necessarily only making content that is you know air quotes good air quotes important you know air quotes cinema even you know i like i just the theatrical experience can be really great um even the you know there's that um you know there's clips that go around that people make fun of sometimes but even the you know the last two avengers movies Endgame or Infinity War and, and Endgame, like there's audio recordings that like opening weekend, like packed house audience, just like yeah, and screaming, you know, and like that's the kind of stuff I love for. That, and and it's a shame to, you know, even those movies I think are are a much lesser experience um, watching at home. Not to say yeah. that they're a bad experience across the board watching at home, but you don't get that sort of those moments. It's the magic of the theater. The magic of cinema. All right. With that, I think we have to move on to our final segment. So we're going to play Tear the Community Apart. Are you ready? I think so. I, I'm. You've told me that I don't need to be ready. So You don't need to yes, be ready, but I am you ready. have to be ready. So <laughs> okay. the rules are pretty simple. I have picked two songs, and you're going to tell me which one is better. Sounds easy. Okay. This is the game where no one questions the rule. People get the rules for this one, as opposed to Go Call the Governor, which apparently is like playing Mahjong. But um, all right. <laughs> Today you have a difficult choice, though. I have picked two Brit pop classics from the mid 1990s that have been overplayed to death. And I honestly don't really need to hear either of these songs ever again in my entire life, but they are classics of the genre that basically are known the world over, widely celebrated. Which song is better, Creep by Radiohead or Wonderwall by Oasis? Well, I mean, it's Wonderwall. Okay. I, I agree with this <laughs> in a landslide. Yeah. So I, I will just to briefly elaborate. Yeah, Radiohead's probably my favorite band. I've seen them live six times, I think now. And One of the last big outings I did pre-pandemic was going to the Holly or the Greek with you to see Tom York live. Tom York, that's yeah. right. We saw on his solo tour. Yeah. Yep. Where he played zero Radiohead songs. Yeah. Totally. It was but, mesmerizing. Um, so good. And PTA was I there. mean, they are they are amazing that was one of my topics today and maybe one um moving forward is is the 21st anniversary re-release of kid a and amnesiac yeah um uh kid a being one of the greatest albums of all time i mean radiohead is is i think the last of a certain kind of band um in a way and they are absolutely transcendent um you know johnny greenwood i speaking of um licorice pizza i believe he's doing the score yeah he that. he is and he also did the score for um for spencer which is coming out soon and too which i'm the new jane campion we get yes. three new johnny greenwood yeah. scores this year so um, thrilled for all three of those movies the radiohead hive remains eating 
uh, yep. I think is <laughs> the deal. But um, uh, having said all of that um, about my love of them and actually large um, disdain for most of, or indifference really for most of Oasis's catalog, um, Wonderwall is the better song between the two. And, and that first Radiohead album um, was, a, was a nice test run for all of the things yeah. that they went on to do. And really, if, if Creep hadn't, hadn't been the success that it was, I don't think they would have um, been able to do all, all the things that they were able to do ultimately, but um, Wonderwall is a better song. I 100% agree with that. I, Wonderwall, this word is overused to the point of meaninglessness, but Wonderwall really is an anthem. <laughs> like one of the, I feel like everyone across generations knows that song, can sing that song and gets kind of hyped for that song. Like Oasis obviously does not, did not have the longevity that Radiohead does as a band and even a functional artistic unit and a fa- and a family even, but it's um well, that one song were, really were, fucking rips. Yeah. Well, they were clearly victims of their own egotism. Um, yeah. And you know, Radiohead is a much more um, you know classy uh, uh, kind of um, humble um, group of gentlemen, uh, and. I will say though, uh, you know, I, I also absolutely lived for um, Champagne Supernova. Yeah. Um, I put that above even Wonderwall, despite maybe being less ubiquitous than Wonderwall. I, th- I, I can get behind that too. I, I am not a deep catalog Oasis guy in the way that I am a deep That's catalog radio guy. But we've yeah. talked, we've talked yeah. about the two the, Oasis songs that I can talk about. I think those if you are want, the, those we'll are do the a two. whole other we'll do a whole other emergency um about uh just my deep dive on radiohead um, Wait, if, yes if i'm absolutely down to do that and we'll have to invite friend of the pod and fan favorite michael eichner back to also oh hell yeah go deep Let's on get this. michael back here a beautiful will, round table nerd out 100 and then get into an inevitable fight about which one of us is the tom which one of us is the johnny and which one is the nigel <laughs> and i'm missing one but i'm I the colin the fourth call I'm oh yeah yeah colin. yeah i'd like to be the colin okay he seems nice <laughs> they all seem kind of nice and sweetie i don't know that's a nice the radio they're just a bunch of nice fellas over there but that's right I think we got to wrap up today but thank you so much for joining me alex this was a dream of an episode Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun and uh, I can't wait to do it again. Where can people find you on social media if you'd like to be found? Slash, do you have anything to promote? Uh, I don't right now. I wish I did. Maybe in a future episode, it's all kind of happening right now. But if you'd like to give a follow on Twitter or Instagram, I guess, uh, it's at Chuck Sander, which is a combination of my first and middle name. C-H-U-X-A-N-D-E-R. Incredible. Um, <laughs> I always forget your first name is, well, it's not Chuck, is it? Well, no, I abbreviated it for the purposes of a username, but um, oh. it's it's Charles. Charles. Right. I, maybe next episode I might introduce you as Chuck Eldridge then. Um, okay, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at FKA Pigs with the Z, on Instagram at Drew Haskins with Zs. I really need to like just make this one big vertical. Um, 
and uh, subscribe to culturepig.substack.com for free weekly newsletters about the culture in decline. Um, I wrote about the Met Gala this week. It is one of my favorite letters to date. So you can go check that out um, and consider subscribing. And as always, please rate review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, like wherever you're listening to this. Um, Cause that just helps me. Yeah. Wow. It's five stars for me. Incredible. <laughs> well, go, go smash that five star button on Apple Podcasts then. But um, until next time, see you everyone. Bye.